0: Hello and welcome to Oxtails, the podcast that serves up stories about history and the food that makes it, from the world's longest-running conference on food, the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigurther. And (laughs) today… This is Voltaire Kong. Voltaire lives in Tokyo. I work
1: as a researcher in the field of Japanese culture and society.
0: Today, Voltaire is at a hot new ramen shop in his neighborhood in pursuit of two things. Lunch and one particular sound that goes along with it.
1: I just put the phone on the table, and uh, the person who sat at the table next to me was uh, slurping his and loud enough to record it on my phone. But I thought that people were starting to—people uh, noticed my phone on the table, so I, I, I just uh, thought that it would be best not to uh,
0: leave it on the whole time. Voltaire felt it was bad manners to be recording. So his undercover ramen shop stakeout was cut short. Ramen is one of the hottest food exports from Japan right now, with restaurants touting authentic Japanese ramen popping up in cities all around the world. And we're not talking about those $1 packets of instant noodles. This ramen is different, for a lot of reasons.
1: First, the soup is really uh, good. Normally, you get something that is made from uh, pork fat and bones, and also a shoyu-based, the uh, soy sauce-based, and also a miso-based soup.
0: Then, of course, there are the noodles, which are very chewy. And then any number of different kinds of tasty add-ons. The combinations are endless.
1: And you get uh, slices of pork and uh, some vegetables, onions, and then uh, bamboo shoots, sometimes uh, uh, fish paste, and all these uh, other goodies.
0: (laughs) This dish of noodles and goodies in a bowl of broth evolved in the mid-20th century, first as a poor man's food that innovated on the cheap-to-make Chinese noodles, and then into a popular street food for busy urbanites. And now, a global food phenomenon. Yeah, but through the magic of ramen noodles, your munchy fix will be elevated to a new level of... I I think it's only been in
1: the past few years, maybe 10 years or so, when ramen has really become this popular outside Japan. I think one reason is because of the uh, increasing number of tourists who have been coming to Japan and experiencing the uh, food here. And also because uh, many... Ramen establishments, uh, noodle shops uh, in Japan, have decided to bring their food outside Japan because the market here has uh, become really crowded. So many, many uh, people are now enjoying ramen outside
0: Japan. Except the thing is that even though most of us outside of Japan have by now tasted Japanese ramen, or at least know what it is, by Japanese standards, we haven't had the real experience of eating it. And why is that? Because we haven't slurped it.
1: (laughs) Because uh, you eat ramen with a slurp, you you don't eat it any other way.
0: (laughs) What is a slurp, though? To a Westerner, slurp is just one of many not uniquely important eating-related onomatopoeia, like gulp or chomp. But in Japan, slurp is a distinct cultural act that, Voltaire argues, in every instance it is performed, carries with it an important amalgam of history, meaning, and, perhaps surprisingly, communication. And actually, the paper that this episode is based off of comes from the 2015 symposium, Food and Communication. In that paper, Voltaire talks about not only the slurps that happen every day at the ramen counter, but during a very rarefied ritual involving tea. And we will dive into the tea bowl later. But first, how do you actually slurp your noodles correctly? Since Voltaire had discovered he was not the stealthiest undercover ramen shop recorder, I figured I'd need to call on another slurping expert. Uh, okay, so my name is Yasuko Akimoto. We're at Dwarf no Kachette on um, Proprache. Yasuko is the owner of Dwarf no Kachette, Japanese restaurant in Winnipeg, where I live. Yeah, we have uh, modern Japanese-style food, which is, like, you know, okonomiyaki, like street food. And, of course, ramen is on the menu. We sit at the table with a huge bowl of steaming noodles between us. And the slurping okay. begins. So, uh, so take it away, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so should I just finish it? Yeah, just go ahead. Just do it the way you do it. Okay.
1: Well, you use your chopsticks to bring your noodles into your mouth. And then you suck in the noodles, but at the same time you also suck in the air and also the liquid that's on the noodles. And when you slurp everything up, it makes this sound that is very
0: distinct. Would you... <laughs> Sorry. Take your time. Yusuko sucked the noodles into her mouth so quickly that if you blinked, you might have missed them. It was really impressive. And there are many theories for the different ways this kind of slurping might have evolved.
1: Well, um... In the first place the noodles are very hot so if you slurp them up it kind of lessens the uh, uh, I would say the risk of like burning yourself in, in your tongue or inside the mouth. And so that's the practical way. Another way is because the noodles are really long and uh, slippery so uh, you cannot help but just uh, slurp them up.
0: And while these theories explain a lot describing the slurp as a kind of technology for scald-free noodle enjoyment. Voltaire says there's something more at the heart of it.
1: Uh, You can't eat these uh, noodles without slurping, but then uh, people deliberately slurp to uh, tell everybody else that the food is being enjoyed.
0: So slurping your noodles, which would be considered bad manners in the West, is actually good manners in Japan. A way to say to your host or the chef, that was good. But slurping is unique in this way.
1: Well, in general, people are discouraged from um, making all these uh, different kinds of bodily noises at the table. But uh, slurping is probably the only uh, bodily noise that is allowed, especially when you are having noodles.
0: Slurping has been considered good manners for a long time, too. Hundreds of years. Before ramen was even a thing, it happened with other noodle dishes.
1: And you find uh, references to slurping even in ancient uh, literature. And when slurping is described, it is described as a way of enjoying the food and as a way of uh, communicating your enjoyment of the food to the people around you.
0: Early European visitors to Japan even remarked on the slurping of local eaters in their notes on customs and culture for readers back home. One such writer was a Jesuit missionary from Portugal named Luis Frois, who was visiting Japan in the 16th century.
1: Well, uh, Freud was one of the very few people who were in Japan in the, we would say, the early modern period, non-Japanese. And included in his writings are comments about the food and also the way people ate their food in Japan. And there was this section where he described how people in Japan at that time ate their noodles with uh, very big sounds. Well, meaning that they slurp their noodles, which would be considered very uh, ill-mannered or um, not polite in European society. But it seemed to be a very uh, common thing uh, among people in uh, Japan at that time.
0: Freud seemed to understand that slurping was just part of the etiquette in Japan. But the contemporary English translators of his work? Not so much.
1: Yeah, when he saw... Uh, work was translated into English, the translators who described uh, what he just did mentioned that people in Japan now still uh, slurp their noodles uh, uh, in the same way because uh, people here are not taught their manners. But uh, I thought that was a very unfair (laughs) comment, so I wanted to include that uh, uh, comment of the uh, contemporary translators in my paper It's not because uh, people here are not taught about manners. It's because it is uh, considered manners to slurp uh, your noodles.
0: The translators made the mistake that, unfortunately, many people still make today about slurping in Japan. And it seems to poke at a sore spot. There's recently been this online phenomenon called Nuhara or noodle harassment, a shorthand for the anxiety people feel about being shamed by foreigners who supposedly find the sounds of slurping off-putting. A lot of people are now saying that Nuhara might be the invention of right-wing nationalists trying to drum up anti-foreigner sentiment, but it still makes a case for the self-consciousness slurping provokes. This brings us to another way that we might look at the slurp. And it requires a bit of a broader view. Many Japanese traditions require a certain appreciation for minimalism and beauty of form. Think about origami or ikabana, the art of flower arranging. And you could say that Japanese culture, more than most, prioritizes interpersonal politeness and relationships. So maybe the slurp then satisfies both of these principles, a minimalist yet expressive means of communication that is meant to reinforce good social relations. This might sound a little melodramatic for slurping your ramen, but it perhaps becomes more true when you consider slurping in its lesser known context, in the practice of the art of cha do.
1: Yes, cha do is uh, literally the way of tea. Cha means tea. Uh, do is a way, so it's the way of tea. Uh, people usually call it the tea ceremony, but um, as a tea practitioner, uh, I am one, I sometimes teach it, we try to uh, discourage people from describing it as a ceremony because it's uh, It's a way of life. It's a uh, practice that is for your own spiritual development, enhancement. And so we say chado or the way of tea.
0: This tea-based way of life has been around in Japan for hundreds of years and has millions of followers. Similar to judo or karate-do, the way of tea is a practice of self-betterment that prizes balance and individual growth.
1: Well, in the way of tea, the ultimate goal is to serve and be served a delicious bowl of tea. And that's just about (laughs) it.
0: Voltaire has been practicing the way of tea for about 20 years, which first started for him as an entry point to understanding Japanese culture. Because Voltaire is not originally from Japan.
1: Uh, I was born in the Philippines. Uh, My father was uh, a Chinese-Spanish. My mother was uh, Filipino. Uh, but I came to Japan after high school. But by the time I started studying tea, I was already uh, fluent in the language and I already uh, knew that I would concentrate on uh, Japanese society and culture for my uh, field. But I wanted to learn more and to be really into the uh, culture, so I tried to shop around for, <laughs> for one field of training that I could uh, get into. So I, I did try calligraphy, I tried Aikido and all these other traditions of Japanese uh, culture. But he just uh, felt like uh, the most suitable uh, uh, tradition that I could uh, really concentrate on. I thought that here was something that uh, where you could eat and drink uh, good things at the same time you are learning. And and, and uh, supposed to be uh, developing your uh, spirituality, your, your um, self as a person.
0: Epicurean tendencies aside, it perhaps made sense that someone like Voltaire, who communicates for a living, writing papers and explaining culture to other people, would gravitate toward a cultural practice that has to do with communication itself. Because a chado gathering, a formal event in which every part of the evening has its procedure, can simply not happen without the communicative slurp. Here is how that happens.
1: You have about three to five guests who come, invited by one host.
0: Guests arrive, enjoy a light meal prepared by the host. It has to be light so that you can enjoy your tea. And then the tea is served, accompanied by desserts. We should mention that the kind of tea used in the tea ceremony also happens to be another Japanese food that Westerners might recognize. Matcha, the bright green tea powder made from young tea leaves that has become a staple flavoring ingredient at coffee chains. Um,
1: I do not order a matcha latte at Starbucks. I, I, I tried it once because I, I just wanted to find out how it tastes.
0: The host whisks the first bowl of tea for the guests, a thick, bitter, dark green suspension of matcha and hot water, the consistency of espresso. Once the tea is whisked, conversation must fall silent, and one bowl is passed around for guests to share. The slurping can now begin. In fact, it must begin or else nothing else can happen.
1: Yes, because especially when you are drinking thick tea, uh, there is very little conversation that is um, that is taking place. And when you take the first sip, you are telling the host that, yes, you are now enjoying the tea. And then it signals to the host, the tea preparer, uh, that uh, he or she, the, the host, can now start to do all these other things that he must do while the guests are enjoying their tea. So he cannot do anything or say anything until the first guest has had the first uh, sip of the tea.
0: Once that first guest has slurped and everybody has had a taste of the thick espresso-like tea, the host serves the next tea course, the thin tea, each guest getting their own bowl of frothy cappuccino-like matcha, whisked up with the wooden tea whisk.
1: And when you have... a uh, The thin tea, when you drink the tea, you also drink it with a uh, loud uh, slurp, especially at the end. Not at the beginning like thick tea, but at the end. Because you want to tell everybody that you enjoyed your tea so much that you finished everything, that you slurped everything down. And you also want to clean your bowl so that uh, all the tea is uh, uh, removed from the bowl. And when the bowl is passed around, uh, because people pass around the bowl to appreciate the, uh, the bowl uh, that the tea was in, uh, it will not cause any um, uh, spills, and people will be able to enjoy looking at the bowl more without having to worry about tea spilling out of it.
0: If everyone doesn't slurp out the last of their foamy tea, the bowl will not be clean, which might be rude. It's so impeccably ritualized. It's difficult to understand as an outsider. What those who practice Chado gain from the experience, Voltaire says the reasons for practicing Chado are up to the individual.
1: Uh, you do it for all different kinds of reasons. So you can, uh, you do it because uh, you want to celebrate something, but also you do it because you want to uh, just relax or. Uh, for a good number of, of practitioners, it is a, a good form of of, of uh, meditation, of just uh, freeing yourself from all, all the uh, pressures of the of daily life. Yeah.
0: Maybe there's something about acknowledging the complexity in a thing that seems really simple that helps us manage the complexity of life.
1: Chado is is one way. Through the making of a bowl of tea, you try to uh, enhance your experience of the moment of, of life in general. And so that is why it's called chado, the way of tea.
0: And slurping? Whether it's a casual bowl of ramen or a rarefied bowl of tea, maybe it's the slurp that helps share that moment and that experience with others. Thanks to Voltaire Kong, You can find his paper from the 2015 Symposium on Google eBooks. Links provided on our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash podcast. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigrether, with production help by Thomas Kraus. Editorial oversight is provided by the brilliant Fiona Sinclair and Naomi Duguid. Special thanks in this episode to Yasuko at Dwarf No Cachette in Winnipeg, Canada. This show is made possible both by the Friends and the Board of Trustees of the Oxford Symposium, with a special thanks to Ursula Heinzelman and Elizabeth Luard. Our theme music is by Thomas Krauss. Other music in this episode was by Ava Glendinning, Toshiko Yonikawa, and Brandon Feicher. For a complete list of sourced audio, please visit our website. To learn more about the Oxford Symposium, that website again is OxfordSymposium.org.uk. Follow us on Twitter at OxfordFoodSymp and Instagram, OxfoodSymposium. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, and please give us a review. Thanks so much, everybody, and we'll catch you again next week with some more ox tales.